Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. In general, I mean, the economy is the great unifier, right? I think I've done more for the black community than any other president. And let's take a pass on Abraham Lincoln because he did good, although it's always questionable. You know, in other words, the end result. Well, we are free, Mr. President. But you, we are did free. pretty well. You understand what I mean. <laughs> yeah, no, so I'm going to take a pass on Abe, Abe, honest Abe, as we call it. But him. you say you. Well, there Lincoln you have Schmicken. it. Yeah, that's what, that's yeah. what we say. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Trump and Lincoln listeners, write in. Let us know where you stand uh, on this issue. What's uh, questionable? And that voice is the inimitable Alex Wagner from the circus uh, joins us today to try and make sense of uh, of that and a lot of other things. Uh, Murphy, good to see you. I missed you last week. You were on assignment. We we covered for you, but Phil Rosenthal yes. and I thought you needed a gift because you missed the great food show. So we're sending you three thousand-year Chinese eggs, which Phil says is an incredible <laughs> I delicacy. Appreciate that. Thank you. Just eat them right out of the box and tell me tell me how it goes. Um, <laughs> Meanwhile, all hell all hell continues to break loose, uh, and it's really really interesting to me. This is what interests me, guys. Donald Trump is the ultimate cultural warrior. Uh, he's a white identity card player, uh, you know, past master, and he's pushing these buttons frantically and they're not working for him the way they used to work for him. And, you know, now yesterday you get this decision from the Supreme Court, landmark decision on gay rights written by Neil Gorsuch, Trump's appointee, enrages his base. Uh, but you could see when he was responding to it, he was sort of ambig ambiguous about his feelings on this because he knows he's trapped between two worlds here and he seems very unsure-footed to me right now. Yeah, he's an instinct politician and his instincts on the gay bashing and kind of the nasty side of the uh, the hardcore Christian political base have never really been there. He was never that guy in New York. So it's always been just a political tactic to him. And, you know, you could see it's interesting. The party has evolved a lot. There was not a big backlash in the Republican Senate. Now, some, the Ted Cruz's of the world, when they're not pitching a sweaty wrestling match, uh, seem to be hugely offended by any gay rights legislation. But the rest of the senators <laughs> kind of took a dive. So I think you're right. Trump wants to play the hits. But on this one, I'm not sure he, he sees a win. I think what he's going to land on is race. And that's why, you know, things like the fund to police, which we're going to talk about, are, are probably what he's hoping for. But on this one, you're right. He's staggering. Even, even on race, you know, he's like he's issuing today some executive order on uh, on policing. You know, he's toggling between saying how awful it is that things happen, like what happened to George Floyd and tweeting law and order and <laughs> yeah. make, you know, uh, you know, and characterizing the protesters in, in, a, in a radical way and so on. I mean, even there, it's not entirely clear that he knows where to put his feet. I feel like Trump plays his role as gaslighter in chief, right? But at the end of the day, he is a person that understands or at least is not immune to the giant contours of history. And 
you know, on on the question of civil rights and equality and LGBTQ, he he clearly understands where the tide of history is. And he himself has never been particularly bad on the subject of gay rights, although I wouldn't say he's been good. On the race thing, though, David, it's like amazing to me the sort of um, have your cake and eat it twoism of the Trump strategy, right? Like beginning his comments about what he's going to do to reform uh, policing in the country by saying we want law and order. It's just like he he thinks he can just begin a sort of I won't say a mea culpa, but he can begin a pivot with. Uh, a dog whistle you know it's like if I just say the words if I talk about reforming the police departments in this country and sprinkle in the phrase law and order people won't hear my base won't hear anything more than law and order so I'll be good with them the other thing that's amazing to me is that the White House is saying that his executive orders were something he's been working on since well before George Floyd was murdered (laughs) they began last year I mean it's just like it's 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 not only fraudulent, it's like laughable, but it's it, it's reflective of, I think, a president who does not have a handle on how to calibrate his response to all this. So he's kind of just trying a little bit of everything. You kind of see the friction between Trump, who runs by instinct, and his staff, because you got some dregs at the middle level saying, we got to put out a statement on police reform. We got to, you know, get into this. And Trump kind of tolerates that. But when left to his own devices, which is what we're going to see at the next rally, he goes right to the Archie Bunker music because that's who he is (laughs) and that's where he's comfortable. And, you know, I'll bet dollars to donuts that's coming. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, You know, the thing about it is uh, that uh, this. Uh, the interesting thing about him as the law and order candidate is that he doesn't particularly uh, pay much uh, attention to laws and disorder reigns around him. And I think one of the things that's happened here, you know, it, it may be that there were people who were willing to tolerate his sort of um, his, uh, you know, sort of undertone of racism. Uh, but uh but now things are out of control. And, I mean, you've seen these polls, 80% of Americans saying things are out of control. Uh, so there are people who are offended by some of the things that he's done, defending, uh, you know, Confederate generals and uh, things like that. But there are also people who just said, hey, wait a second. You're supposed to be the strong man who put gets things under control mm-hmm. and things are out of control. And actually the way you behave makes things more out of control that your divisiveness is beginning to bother me. And you see it. I, I heard about a poll, you guys, in a uh, suburban district in, in Pennsylvania that Hillary Clinton carried by a point where Trump three days ago was trailing by 16 points. Wow. Uh, and I yeah. think, and I think that this, this is one of, this is the reason, a part of the reason is uh, that people just, the, the cost of the chaos that surrounds Trump uh, because of the way he does his politics, because of his personality, is becoming more manifest uh, to people, and I, mm-hmm. I think it's um, it's a it's a real problem for him. And I don't know, you know, he is he is as I said toggling back and forth between riling up his base, which has generally been his philosophy, and uh, trying to uh, mollify. Uh, people that he needs because his base isn't big enough. And I just think, you know, it's a big game of Twister. And much like him coming down the stairs at West Point, there's a real chance that he could end up right on his ass. <laughs> well, you know, when you're Mussolini and the trains don't run on time, you're screwed. And we're looking down at the end of this week where this 
completely ill-conceived rally in a state that's seeing surges in a deadly virus. The campaign's making people sign waivers saying they won't sue if they're infected. Public health officials are saying, please don't do this. And he's, I mean, not only is he caught in chaos, he creates chaos. And at the same time, I mean, again, I guess the national gaslighting continues because it's like law and order, law and order. Everywhere he goes is a hurricane, you know, and and like the Americans are given these data points over and over and over again. I'm not one to quote Jeb Bush, but like he nailed it when he said he was going to be the chaos president. It is. I am hat tip, Jeb. You got it right. He was. uh, I mean. But also, like I would, I would say the first three years was chaotic, and I talked to so many people in the Obama administration who were like, "Man, wait till he gets something that isn't a problem of his own making." He has been so lucky, and bam, man, the year twenty twenty is the year that Donald Trump is getting it. You know, and not only is he not combating the problems, he's making them all worse. Yeah. Well, that's who he is. He's kind of unchangeable. Now, speaking of avoiding problems, I thought the Biden campaign was quite shrewd to immediately get out in front of defund the police and say, no, Joe's not on board. But now there's a little pushback. What's your take, Axe, on all that? Well, look, I, I mean, I think he was smart to do it as well. I do think that this moment calls for a radical rethinking of public safety and how funds are apportioned. Uh, uh, but uh, I think very few Americans believe that there's no need for a, a policing function uh, and, uh, would, you know, would not support it. Obviously, Trump's glommed on to it. Uh, the Biden folks immediately saw the danger, uh, but he's being pushed. You know, there was a coalition of, I think, 50 organizations, uh, African-American organizations that pushed him the other day on, on um, having a much more robust plan for how to deal with this. And I think the subtext of it also has to do with his consideration of a running mate. Uh, you know, one of my questions to you guys is, do you think, and Alex, uh, let me pose it to you, do you think that uh, the events of the last few weeks, including the horrific uh, shooting in Atlanta, how someone who is pulled aside, an unarmed person who's pulled aside for uh, being drunk in his car ends up dead is uh, is is mortifying, but um, do you think that this uh, puts additional pressure on Biden uh, to choose a, a, a woman of color as his running mate? Yeah, I mean, well, OK, so first, I think we should just talk about, you know, the the response to this idea of defunding the police. It it, it divides along racial lines. There's more support among uh, Americans of color, specifically African-Americans. But there's a division beyond that that I'm willing to bet I haven't I've looked in the sort of data around on the polling on this. Um, I do think older black Americans have a different attitude towards this than younger black Americans. And just anecdotally, from my time covering a state like, you know, South Carolina and the primaries, you just had, you know, black Americans are not monolithic and they have different ideas about what is necessary in the executive branch. And there is much more zeal for big structural change among younger black Americans than there is uh, among older black Americans who have, you know, been around and seen um, the sort of 
intransigence, the, the, the sort of structural racism and have had to manage it their entire lives. And so I think are less optimistic about the possibilities for big structural change, right? So, I mean, I think when it comes to selecting a running mate, look, Biden was always going to have work to do with young people and especially young people of color, right? Like they remember the 1994 crime bill in a way that when I talk to black voters across the South, they were much more forgiving of that record and, and, and much more closely associated Biden with Obama. And that that was a lot for them. Now, I don't know how much that thinking and belief in Biden has changed over the course of the last several weeks as we're talking about race more explicitly. But I think, you know, I absolutely think coming out of this, there is going to be immense pressure, two competing sort of weather fronts for Biden, immense pressure for him to choose a person of color given where the conversation is at. But also there is immense pressure for him to win and beat Trump in those swing states, Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Florida, the places we always talk about where that is going to matter less, the color of his running mate skin and more can he pick someone who's ready to take over in 2024? Because there is a general understanding that Joe Biden could be a one-term president. And among the field of candidates, yeah. Val Demings, I mean, a lot of the, Kamala Harris probably rises to the top in terms of who is a woman of color who can also perhaps be ready in 2024 the way that she would need to be given her national profile. But her record on criminal justice is complicated, very complicated. And that makes her selection not a gimme. It's yeah. hard. I think the same division that you point up out in, about attitudes toward this notion of defunding police is also true as it comes to, you know, in the electorate, in that younger voters are are the ones who Biden has to motivate. The older African-American voters, I think, are going to be all in uh, for him. But it is a really, Murphy, this is a, a tough calculation of for him you know i you know there are two schools of thought one is you pick someone and we've talked about this before to motivate uh, elements of your base that you need to be motivated and there is a bit of an enthusiasm gap between people who say they support biden and people who say they support trump uh, on the other hand uh, there is a theory that you double down on on calm <laughs> you know stable right, right. unexciting don't rock the boat because you're in a position here to to win. And, um, you know, they're not going to make this decision, I think, for another six weeks. Uh, probably see how this thing evolves. They're going through their vetting. But it's, it's a complicated decision. Yeah, they're going to be under tremendous pressure to do what I think politically is a mistake. And my guess is they will do it because identity has a triple stranglehold on the kind of, you know, Democratic Party inside world. But I would say... Joe, don't be Trump. Don't make it all about your base. The base is going to vote for you. There's going to be no African-American voter revolt over uh, insider stuff like this where they're going to not participate and watch Trump get reelected. I mean, that, that's, that's Jupiter. This is like the Jason movie where they've got Trump now, if you look at all the data, it's early, but they have Trump in the grave and things are looking pretty good. And the camera pushes in on the grass by the tombstone and then a claw pops up. That, that claw is to fund the police <laughs> and racial tension, particularly when you run against a bare knuckle brawler racist who is going to go to the suburbs with that. The one base group Joe has is African-Americans. I agree there's work to do to try to maximize it. But, you know, why, why jump into risk? And if you get Kamala 
Then you're going to be in a long debate about the differences with your running mate. You, you don't want the distraction. You want to manage risk. Um, and I don't know. I think Trump is the great enthusiasm generator, and fire Trump is the motor of the election. And I think the Biden guys, despite all the internal pressure they're going to get, are crazy to fool around with that and try to give Trump the ammo to change the topic of the election. The counterargument is that in this moment, we're having a big national discussion about the barriers to entry uh, for people of color. And, you know, you, you the counterargument is that you have um, uh, a, 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 a loyal base of the party uh, and that that does not want to be uh, taken for granted, particularly in a moment when these barriers have are being debate debated and discussed. It's one thing to say that we're, you know, it's about time that we do something about them. It's another thing to actually do something about them. But I mean, I think it's, like I said, a complicated question because I think there's a lot to what you say. I think we need to be careful. I mean, Joe Biden is the candidate for, is going to be the presidential nominee for the Democrats because of black voters. I mean, this is an extraordinary election insofar as, you know, he was basically a walking dead man until South Carolina. And with the help of Jim Clyburn, black voters were like, you know what, this is our guy. And that's literally the beginning of his fortunes in this race. It begins this the story of Joe Biden as a viable candidate begins with black voters. And a lot of them will say it also ends with black voters. So, you know, I don't think it's as easy as just a calculation. I think that there is a sense of indebtedness that I think is is absolutely correct. And I think beyond that, you know, there have been moments when we've talked about race, but I got to tell you guys, this feels really different. This just feels in, yeah, you know, in the way that you. we talked about gender and we talked about sexual harassment and Me Too has been game changing in terms of the way we think about the basics of how we talk to each other, how we act, how, you know, they're sort of unspoken biases. I do think this this moment is reshaping the conversation about race and 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 you know deep-seated problems in institutions including politics and fundamentally structures of power as it concerns the enfranchisement of people of color. And so I don't think the Democrats can be as cavalier as, yeah, but what about Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania? They, they've got to sort of reach deeper than that. And even if, if he doesn't choose a person of color, there has got to be a very you know, there, it's going to be hard to not do that. I, I mean, I understand the political calculation. He's not going to be anything if he doesn't, you know, beat Trump. But mm-hmm. that that point uh, is an important one. Uh, and when you think about why it was that the African-American uh, voters in South Carolina and elsewhere uh, voted for uh, Biden, yes, it was the connection to Barack Obama, and he had Obama's back for eight years, and they were strong partners. That was deeply appreciated. It also was a perception that he was the guy who could beat Donald Trump, and there was mm-hmm. a real desperation to to beat Donald Trump. So that that you know, when the word calculation can seem uh, kind of unclean, but uh, when you know when the calculation is about winning or losing. Uh, sure. A race that many, many of the same voters who voted for him consider existential, you know, that has that that has its place. So that's why I say it's a it's a complicated uh, decision for him. Yeah, Ultimately, totally. he's got to pick the person that he feels most comfortable with uh, that and, and a person who uh, manifestly is ready because, um, 
you know, because he is going to be 78 years old, uh, and as was pointed out earlier, that person is likely going to be, if not the president before, you know, uh, 2024, the uh, the candidate mm-hmm. for president in 2024. So that's that's important. It's huge. And you know who the choice is, obviously. You can read my mind here, Axelrod. Who's the obvious choice for government? I, I know what you will say. Gina Raimondo, yes. Gina Raimondo, governor of Rhode Island. I try to plug her every week to save the country. I'm a patriot. She's, she's, a, <laughs> she's a friend of mine, and I have a great deal of respect for her. But at this point, I think she owes us some sponsorship fees for the number of times <laughs> that, that you have. I agree. Have let's have uh, her here. Cut an invoice or at least put me on the Rhode Island State Yachting Commission or something. I need a little grease. <laughs> and that's no surprise to the good politicians of Rhode Island either. I want to see you in your boater. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, so, yeah, so Iowa. Murphy, you and I have spent a lot of time in Iowa. We have. We used to have the Iowa Cup. We traded back and we forth did, between yes. governors running For campaigns governor, against each other. governor's job. races, yes. But the new Iowa poll came out yesterday in March Trump had a 10-point lead. He, I think he won by nine in 2016. Now the new poll came out, and it's basically tied 44-43. Trump uh, maintaining a 17-point lead among men, although he won by, I think, 30 or 28 or 30 among men in mm-hmm. 2016. And uh, uh, he is uh, uh, losing by 14 points among women. He lost by seven in 2000. Uh, and 16. His job approval, which was above water, now 45% to 53 uh, in Iowa. Uh, I mean, this, and this is after they spent half a million dollars on advertising in Iowa in late May and early June. Uh, this has to be uh, concerning because it's not just, uh, I mean, Iowa's taken it in the shorts on the economy even before the virus because of some of Trump's policies, but Obviously, in March, people were fine with him. So this has to be a, a point of concern. Totally. I mean, I, I'm sure they're running around sliding down rails, you know, stealing the typewriters at campaign headquarters, so to speak, because this is scary data. This this is that they're scraping bottom here. There was an Arkansas poll that was close. And I think what happened was, look, Trump before— Wait, the, wait, before you go forward, yeah. before, before you go forward, note to listeners, Murphy knows that people don't use typewriters anymore. It's just yeah. a, an expression. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no I'm thinking They're on of display. Something. It's just office, old-timey office decor. I actually have an old selector. Yes. I'm a typewriter nut. Me and Tom Hanks, but there was a joke going around, an email going around Republican Party when Manafort got put in charge of the Trump campaign, which is imagine a truck being loaded with typewriters and Xerox machines at midnight, because we all know Paul. But to this question... I think Trump was in yeah, trouble. Yeah, I think it was your joke, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, Trump was in trouble. But I'm, I'm actually kind of soft on Paul. He's an interesting cat. Knew him in the old days. So Trump was in <laughs> but trouble. But we digress. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to indict myself. And I'm bringing you down with me, Chicago. <laughs> but but uh, So back to the back to the point here. Um, Trump was in trouble in the swing states before Corona virus. I, I thought he was heading toward losing, but he was in the race. Then the wrong track, when people say in polling they think things have gone to hell, has skyrocketed. And the economic argument, as we have discussed, has evaporated, at least right now. So now he's in trouble in the states that he ought to get pretty much for free, like Iowa. Now, my guess in the end is he'll be able to crawl to a victory or two, but it's in play, no doubt about it. And over at campaign headquarters, you know, memo to staff, we put this guy in ads right now with the current message, and it gets worse. 
So they have a real problem, and that's putting the Joni Ernst of the world in, who are in, in, were in somewhat weak position to begin with in even more trouble. Yeah, this is a big thing. So th- this is the total nightmare. Now, Joni Ernst was down three in this Iowa poll, and the, the congressional candidates yeah. in the state were uh, they were all uh, they were in tight races in March, and they've all sprinted out to leads in this poll. So the down ballot effect of Trump's erosion. Mm-hmm is being felt, which you talk about Trump, the Trump headquarters. How about over at the Senate uh, campaign committee, (laughs) Republican campaign committee and the uh, Republican House committee? I mean, they've got to be because they're stuck. They can't they can't take a walk on Trump. Yeah, no, no, it's indelible. And, you know, some of their guys, the Cory Gardner's of the world, and and he's as bad off as it could be by now. A year ago, 18 months ago, they could have maneuvered to create their own identity. Collins has had some success with that. We can talk about her. But they didn't. And, and when you now try to cut and run late, it's even worse. It, you get nothing for it. I mean, the Senate guys, I mean, I have friends over there, and they, they say, hey, nice new carpet. It's all yellow. It ain't carpet. Those are dead canaries. A lot of feathers around here. Because there's not, there's not a Republican senator with internal data outside of, like, you know, the Mitt Romneys of the world in really safe states. But anybody who's up this thing has, has crappy data. And we're to the point where good news on us, and you know, Axe, this is not good news, but good news is when an incumbent's sitting at 43, 42, nowhere near 50. Right. That, that tie is the challenger, good yes. news, and yeah. it's good news for challengers. So um, a lot of campaign left, but but it, it's uh, it's grim. I was at a town hall with Ernst uh, at the end of last year where she was confronted in a now infamous video that went viral by a, uh, a constituent who had driven a couple hours to get there and just ask her, you know, when, where is the line? When it was right when the first, I think, whistleblower complaint came out about Ukraine. And it was just kind of this incredulity and fury and anger that this woman was channeling. And Joni Ernst had no, no aptitude, no capability to manage the rage. Like the 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 sense of I mean, now obviously this woman is progressive. I don't think she was gonna vote for Joni Ernst anyway in this election, but you know, I, I the 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 level of discomfort, and that was in the fall, um, among with candidates like Joni Ernst, who 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 knew even then that this was gonna be a, a, a complicated election cycle. Um, the ability to sort of bridge the sort of placating the base and managing the ire of independence, it's like an impossible position, an impossible line to toe. And she wasn't good at it then. And I have a hard time imagining that she's gotten better at it since. And now she has an opponent, Teresa Greenfield, won the primary there, who's a rural uh, woman. Uh, and, um, you know, again, someone who... Um, will not read threatening uh, to Iowa voters that she'll read familiar uh, to Iowa voters. And Joni's sitting there with a approval rating in the 30s. So that's a race they, you know, that is not generally on the list of frontline mm-hmm. races, but it, it, it may well find its its way there now. Uh, you know, they've got they've got real problems. One note on the Colorado race, you know, I like John Hickenlooper a lot. Um, but he's a quirky fellow and, um, he's, he's, he's had a series of missteps, uh, in this, uh, in this early going, even though he's had a huge lead, one poll had about 18 points, but he's now, you know, there's just, there's a slight sort of scintilla of concern about the primary. He's got a, a primary challenge on June 30th and he's getting challenged 
uh, from the left. And meanwhile, he's getting pummeled by, as of this morning, by Gardner uh, on all the times that he said he wasn't interested in being a senator, didn't want to be a senator, wouldn't be a good senator. Uh, And so, you know, I think this was considered the most secure of all the seats. I think he'll probably still win and maybe comfortably. But, you know, it isn't all blue skies and, and, and mm-hmm. you know, seashells and balloons for uh, for Democrats. They've got they've got Are a, seashells, a harbinger of better days. Yeah, I, I didn't know you were freelancing for Hallmark either. I'm seeing this pretty thing of puppies. Balloons I think that's an old uh, Al, Al McGuire, Al McGuire, the old oh. basketball coach and announcer used to talk about seashells well, and balloons. I agree with you. I, 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 Gardner is a good candidate, but it's going to be hard in Colorado, even with the Hickam. I agree. Stumble. I agree. Listen, I, I mean, I think, look, I think Montana is yeah. uh, looking promising yeah. for Democrats. I think that North Carolina is going to be very close, but, uh, you know, uh, it's looking relatively promising for Democrats. Maine. Let's talk about Maine for just a second. So John Krauschauer from the National Journal, a political reporter, a good one, a bit contrarian, went up to Maine and wrote the following column, which I think he tweeted. You can you can find it, which is basically Collins has been in a tough race for all the reasons, Maine, Kavanaugh, et cetera, et cetera. But by running a ton of advertising on local issues, the Paycheck Protection Program, you know, kind of classic Senator Pothole sort of things, she's managed to edge up to the high 40s a few points ahead of the Democratic candidate who was, you know, fairly well regarded there, Sarah Gideon. Now, they don't have their primary. It's been delayed till July, but Gideon is the overwhelming favorite. So Collins is showing some life, uh, according to this article and that Terrence poll that the campaign released. Now, that said, I I would still bet against Collins myself because it's Maine. It's a presidential year. She's damaged her brand in Trump. But she has been doing a pretty good textbook case of trying to localize the election. And she has a little bit of longstanding grip on the state from having been that person before her own collapses and selling out to Trump. So do we believe it or do we think it's an early summer squall kind of thing? I mean, I think the pandemic in a lot of ways has been is a real opportunity for these endangered Senate candidates. And I would even throw Lindsey Graham in the mix here, though he's not quite in the same danger that Susan Collins is. It's a chance for them to reaffirm their ties to the state economies, which is, you know, the thing that's going to win them in the age of socially distancing themselves from Donald Trump. Right. Like they can just sort of redouble their efforts to help bars and restaurants and small businesses and show people how the rubber meets the road when they're in office. Um, so that's a gift to someone like Susan Collins, whose national profile. I mean, I I keep going back to, you know, the the vote on impeachment and the vote for Brett Kavanaugh that just has national groups. There is blood in the water. You know, they see those as very high profile weak points for her. And, you know, they could prove to be the architecture of her ouster. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I, she is a survivor, though. She somehow manages every single time. It's like so everybody keeps slipping on the banana peel she lays down. Like, we know it's there. We know which way she's going to vote. But she keeps always doing this footsie like, I'm the independent. You can never predict, even though her voting record is quite abundant, makes her allegiance is quite clear. She is pretty masterful at getting yeah, people wily. to sort of fall in yeah, line. Yeah, she is. She knows, she knows her state. She knows her state. And her state knows her. And, uh, you know, it's, that's going to be a very close race. One thing I would say is that uh, Sarah Gideon, who is the uh, speaker of the uh, main house, uh, ran 20,000 
gross rating points, Murphy, of media up there, uh, uncontested kind of by the Collins people to define herself. Uh, and that could turn out to be a pretty good investment, you know. Yeah, it makes it harder it's, it's, to murder her later, which, you know, Mitch and the Collins people have a, exactly. have a talent for. Uh, hey, one last one, because we we'll give the Dems a salute here. Arizona. They have almost put that race away. You know, McSally's a horrible candidate. He's kind of disintegrated. Mark Kelly has proven to be a good candidate in, in the state that may be every bit as important as Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania in the presidential. Totally. So that's one place with a lot of good Democratic news. Double-digit lead. I mean, I just think having Trump go to the state as it's surging, uh, as COVID cases are surging, having Trump go to the state, a place like Maricopa County, there's like a huge uptick. That is not a place where you want to see a surge of COVID-19-related deaths heading into an election. I mean, that's Trump country. Well, Trump himself, actually, I think has some problems there. You know, uh, you know yeah. remember, Maricopa County is a is a sprawling county, a lot of suburban communities there. And, uh, you know, he is not going to, it's not going to be an easy task for him to, uh, to win that state. So exactly, uh, it'll be interesting to see how people process his, uh, his visit there. Uh, you know, it, it is phenomenal that he is, uh, you know, that he is basically defying his own government's recommendations, uh, in order to assuage his, uh, gigantic need uh, to to for adoration and love and approval uh, in front of a big crowd uh, so we'll 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 see what happens there you know one other thing on the on the Senate stuff there's a primary on Tuesday in uh -huh. Kentucky Democrats mm -hmm. thought <laughs> national Democrats thought this woman Amy McGrath who ran for Congress a veteran who ran for Congress and lost narrowly in 2018 would be the toughest opponent for Mitch McConnell and you know national progressive Democrats who hate Mc, Mc, uh, who hate McConnell are sh showering her with money. She's got nineteen million dollars in the bank right now, uh, but she caught a primary challenge from a state senator, Charles Booker, African American uh, state senator, and there's like more than a little concern on the part of the the big brains in Washington that Booker will upend their chosen candidate uh, because he has the endorsement of uh, AOC and uh, and Bernie Sanders and, by the way, several of the large newspapers in the state, mm -hmm. and he's run a better campaign. Uh, so that's going to be an interesting one to watch. I'm fascinated with this one because he is a good candidate who's getting legit support He's an African-American candidate in a moment where, you know, that is something the country is very focused on. He is in a southern state, which means he's probably going to have 17, 18, 19 percent of the vote in the primary be African-American. And he's closing the polls. Well, she is running the smart campaign to try to take on McConnell. She's going to the center. But the progressive energy uh, right now is not there. So I would not be, you know, people say, oh, he, she's still all that money, which is amazing. And she's still 12, 14 points ahead. But as you well know, X, and, you know, it, it, it's just in a primary, the ballot can move really fast. It's not like a general election, yeah. maybe only 10% of the vote is in play. So I would not be at all surprised if the big surprise name, and I think the primary is like next week, right? It's coming up soon. Yes, next week, yeah. Mm -hmm. Is going to be Charles Booker, because I think it's like even money, he's going to upset McGrath, which is- Well, he's apparently doing really well shocker. among voters who know both of them. 
And the question is whether he can close that gap uh, between now and then. But yeah, it's really interesting as a textbook thing. You know, the the playbook of the committees in Washington in states like this and districts that are swing districts is try and avoid a primary, get someone who can tack to the middle and they will be the best general election candidate. And uh, they tried to sneak the goods through customs here, and it didn't work. And now she's got a real, yeah, she's got now, a real race. There's ten guys running with the cuffs. Yeah, not good. <laughs> uh, I I don't know. I mean, I just think this this is kind of a microcosm of the larger debate that's happening inside the party, especially you know when you look at the sort of cleave between the progressive and the centrist base. Do we want to win? Well, progressives say, yeah, but what are we winning? We want to move the ball right. forward. We want a, a candidate who you know better represents us that is actually going to push for the change we want. And if that means sacrificing an election cycle, so be it. Now, I'm not saying that this that's exactly the argument that's being made over Booker, but you know, you talk to AOC, you talk to a number of people in that you know faction of the party, and it's like, what is it? I mean. We're not here to get another centrist to to move the party back to the center. Winning is not the end unto itself. So, you know. Well, especially especially because I don't know, Murphy, I, I, you know, I don't know what you think. I agree with Alex. She framed this upright. The reality is it's it's hard for me to see either of them. Uh, winning. They just invested a boatload of money in uh, trying to destroy Amy McGrath. That's how McConnell always wins is, uh, you know, he'd start off with Roger Ailes beating D. Huddleston in the mid 80s by uh, by destroying Huddleston. And McConnell is not, you know, he's not a s- sentimental guy. He's, he's, he saw the, the objective and he went out to destroy it. And they put a huge hurt on her. I saw one poll where she was 30 points underwater and favorable. Uh, so, it's not clear to me that either of these candidates uh, will 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 beat Mitch McConnell. Yeah, and it's Kentucky, and McConnell has a great weapon and a, tr- a really good media consultant, a good friend of mine named Larry McCarthy, who started with Ailes and has really been a mastermind in the McConnell world. Um, I'll tell you one thing about Mitch, though, if you know him, he does have a sense of humor, and if Booker and AOC pull this off. I hope he names a post office after uh, uh, um, AOC somewhere in Kentucky. Just as a, That's if we a still have pe- post offices. The pre- president <laughs> apparently wants to eliminate those. Touché. Yeah, no, he, he's mad at Amazon. He wants to get rid of the postal service. Let's take a little break and give our sponsors a say. You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A good and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now and it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero, for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. 
then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to reliefband, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. I just want to close out before we get take some uh, letters with, a, uh, with the issue of mail and voting. Uh, in Iowa last week in the primary, they had a really robust record turnout, flawlessly run election, not a hint of scandal. And the Iowa, uh, the Iowa uh, legislature were so moved by this that they voted to ban the secretary of state from sending out applications for, uh, for absentee ballots in the fall, the Republican legislature. Uh, he was a, he, there's a Republican secretary of state he in because of COVID nineteen he sent absentee ballots to everyone in the state. It resulted in a in a uh, record turnout, and now the Republican legislature, so fearful of a big turnout in the fall, banned this. It comes at a time, by the way, Murphy, that in your home state of Michigan, in Grand Rapids, they actually had an absentee ballot application burning in on Saturday to protest the fact that the Secretary of State had sent out applications for absentee ballots. What the hell is going on in your party? Well, it is insane. Uh, it's un-American. And a ugly little secret is absentee ballots are good for Republican candidates. It was essentially invented out here in California. It's one of the reasons Pete Wilson won as governor in the 80s. Um, so the idea, what, what's happening is people particularly morons, and unfortunately we have no <laughs> shortage of those in American politics, and they are very well represented now uh, in, in parts of the GOP, large parts of it, uh, think that mailing out absentee applications creates a wave of you know sinister uh, voters who've never voted before who are going to come sweeping in and, and win, and Trump believes that. So the stupid factor here is off the charts. But the truth is, one, for our democracy during COVID, we need it. Two, it works great. And three, it is not bad for Republicans. Yeah, that last point has been completely lost on the party. Totally. Completely. Well, again, you know, the Democrats are the neurotic party, but we're the stupid party. And, you know, now we're, we're just tripling down on the stupid on this. All right, enough yeah. self-flagellation. Uh, <laughs> I'm only getting started. You know who's not stupid are our listeners, and they have a lot of smart questions. So I think it's time for... It's Listener Mailbag. Thank you. So Mike Murphy, mm-hmm. Leslie, wants to know, is there anything, and it's all in caps, it's like a Trump tweet, <laughs> is there anything that could happen that would turn Trump's base against him? 
That is a great question, Leslie, and I don't think on a wholesale basis it would. But in the never-Trump Republican troublemaking world over at Republican Voters Against Trump, uh, our goal, and we're running a bunch of media now to do it, is to try to push the Republican number down to 90 or 89 uh, because that four or five point move would have a material difference in the in some of these key swing states. And the question is, will this Supreme Court decision on the rights of gay Americans have an impact on the hardest core of the religious right, which is quite upset about it? And Trump's not really fighting the battle. So could that be the straw that breaks at least a few backs and be part of this five to six point Republican movement? I, I think Trump is taking some water, and I think this will hurt him. But if you're looking for a big flop and the movie ending where a bunch of Republicans march on the White House to demand he you know, resign, I don't think you're going to see it. Interesting, Alex, on this, on the decision of the court, because, you know, Trump's relationship with the evangelical community is not based on his piety or devoutness. <laughs> it's a purely transactional. Or his Bible holding skills. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. We don't even know whether that was the Old Testament or the New Testament because, uh, well, anyway, but, uh, the, you know, it's a transactional relationship. And as we totally. mentioned earlier, they think uh, they got screwed by Gorsuch on this. And uh, may you know there may be some accountability there. Anyway, I have a question uh, for you, Alex Wagner, from Ephraim, who said, "Is there any doubt Barr and many others in the administration already have blanket pardons signed by Trump, tucked away in a safe place?" I would say he's not the kind of guy who would like just sign, uh, you know documents willy-nilly that could be used against him. But of course, he did sign a check to Michael Cohen for hush money. So um, I think that there is no doubt that um, Trump has willy-nilly spoken of pardons to anybody that's in a tough place. I don't know, though, that Barr is the kind of person. I mean, I think Barr is a very ideologically driven person um, that really believes in what he's doing in a sort of um, he's committed in a way that I don't think it's about the pardon being locked away in the safe. But I would basically guarantee you that in conversation, casual or formal, Trump has absolutely dangled pardon to his foot soldiers who have taken on the most heat. No doubt. Like just there's absolutely no doubt about that i mean what else explains the bizarre behavior yeah. on michael flint i mean they're, they're just they're, it's impossible it's the kind of sort of mafia don like you know tra he is transactional by nature right but it is totally part of the trump playbook to offer you know you do me this i do that that there's no doubt in my mind that some kind of quid pro quo has been offered i think the one thing you can be sure of is no later than november 4th and probably between the third and the fourth, the truck is going to back up, the pardon truck, and uh, you know <laughs> Paul, Paul Manafort, totally. Murphy's buddy, come on down. We're going to have a big ding, party ding, ding. at uh, Peter Luger's. Gonna, there's, yeah, there's going to be like a little song, like when the ice cream man comes, yeah. when the Mister Softy truck pulls up. No, they're they're going to break the printer. I agree. It's going to happen, and he's pretty much indicated that it's going to happen. He's not going to let any of his people leave without a pardon in their hands. And so, uh, you know, Ephraim, your basic instinct uh, was right. Alex, our friend Scott wrote in a question for me. He sure did. I've been holding on and, to this. And I think he'd be thrilled if you read it. I yeah. would love nothing more than to do that. 
If the Biden team ultimately needs to prioritize states and media markets as we get closer, wouldn't it make sense to focus on Nebraska 2 and Maine 2, given how inexpensive they presumably are, the media markets, and how few net votes are needed to flip them? Scott, with a deep dive, along with Michigan and Pennsylvania, that would set the floor at 270, i.e. a win, even without Arizona, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Texas, Ohio, or Iowa. Scott. Axe, what's your answer to that? Yeah, no, this is this, this interesting. I look at, first of all, I think Scott uh, has uh, done a, a good job of studying the mechanics of the electoral college and the process. Uh, Maine and Nebraska split their electoral votes. Most states do not. Uh, the second district of Nebraska is a more liberal uh, district, and uh, it's been won before. I think Obama won it, uh, and. Uh, Maine, too, is a more conservative district. I would certainly look at that Nebraska district. Uh, but, you know, the way you do this is you, um, you, 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 you make calculations uh, as to which state will uh, tip you over 270, and they're going to prioritize uh, states that way. I look at your list, and I think that um, uh, Georgia, Texas, uh, Ohio, Iowa, North Carolina, I think those are uh, those are not going to make the initial cut. I think Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, uh, maybe North Carolina will make it. Uh, uh, Wisconsin, those states are going to be uh, paramount. So where these two districts fall in line in terms of their priorities, I don't know. But it is really, it's an interesting question. Nobody really focuses on that. But in a close race, uh, it could be one of those districts that tips this thing in favor of a candidate. Yeah, Maine, too, is interesting. It has a freshman, I think, freshman Democratic congressman who flipped that district. That's also where a gun control thing lost two to one. It's very rural. It's kind of culturally conservative. But, uh, Scott, and you are the Ayatollah of the Electoral College, Ola, to ask this question. These <laughs> things kind of move together. It's not just how many yard signs you have in the district. Because if, if, if Biden is winning Maine, too, he's definitely going to be in the hunt in Wisconsin. And he will, I think, be ahead in Arizona. He'll be in the hunt even in North Carolina. So, you know, even though we think about local organization, local media spend, the elections are quite nationalized because the message platform people get online and on the cable news and everywhere else is driven by what's going on in the national debate. So they're, they're not quite islands, but they're fascinating. And they're, those two states are different. So the congressional thing is really important. Smart question. If you have a question for the hacks and our esteemed guest, send it to us. We read these things. Hacks on tap at Gmail. Dot com hacks on tap at gmail.com and don't forget to rate us on iTunes we're doing great but you can help us do better by telling that Apple algorithm to quit listening to Putin and instead push us up the rating so people can hear us for the first time and hopefully get hooked we appreciate your support all right let's take a quick commercial break and we'll be back I was out yesterday, uh, not yesterday, I was out last weekend in a protest uh, march uh, at in, in St. Joseph, Michigan, St. Joe and Penton Harbor. They're twin cities. One is 90% white, one is 90% black. There's been a long history of racial antagonism between 
the two and and very disproportionate income profile, education profile, and so on. Big protests, thousand people, more white than black, marched through St. Joe and to Benton Harbor to demand reforms, uh, police reform, uh, reforms, and and and. Uh, general reforms uh, to deal with the inequities that exist. And my thought was, it was great to be there, and I was glad to be a part of it. Uh, But the question is whether this, for those who were there, was a conscience cleanser or part of a sustained commitment to bring about change. And I think that's yet to be seen. Uh, It is really heartening to see Americans out and expressing themselves this way. it is yet to be seen whether the sustained work will be done to bring about those substantive reforms that will truly get to, uh, to confront the legacy of racism that has existed in our country from the very beginning. My last call is similar. I did not go to a protest here in Los Angeles. Instead, several thousand people came to me. We live in the mayor's neighborhood, so I got to meet a lot of protesters as they thousands of them crossed uh my front lawn. And I'll tell you, it was impressive. It was very American. It, uh, it was peaceful. It was mixed race, as Zach said. It was positive. There were about 25% were young suburban kids in trying to meet girls and change the world. So some things are universal, but the whole thing had a very positive feeling. The cops were good. It, uh, it, it was just an American moment. I was impressed by it. What, what I would say is police reform is a really, really hard issue, and we need to approach this thing with a blank sheet of paper. A lot of the in vogue reforms were tried in Minneapolis. They had all the programs. They had all the new police chief. Um, they made history. They had a local police chief, I think was the first gay police chief they'd, they'd had, and then now they have an African-American. So the old playbook for, quote, informing a police department failed in Minneapolis. And we, we have to recognize that and step back and think about how we change incentives, um, how we how we change training. It, it's time for some very new systemic thinking, or it'll just be a repeat of the same old federal programs, same old slideshows, same old uh, uh, um, approaches, which we now know from Minneapolis don't work. So I hope uh, I hope we take it as a national mission. It's not pure cop bashing. There are a lot of fantastic police. They need to be empowered to work on a peer basis. There's just so much we need to do, but we, we're going to have to try some new ideas and recognize failure where, where it exists. I'm one of the reprehensible New Yorkers that left town. We have a place out uh, on a part of Long Island that is uh, <laughs> very um, split, and it is a part of the the state that is Trump won and there we have a pretty conservative congressperson but the you know change is afoot and you know amid all of the calls for justice among the you know the the debate that we're having publicly and privately um the house around the corner that one of our neighbors I was driving by the other day and they put up a confederate flag inside their garage which is the door is partially closed it's very symbolic right they felt like this was the time for them to fly that flag but at the same time the door isn't open all the way because they know that it's controversial if not downright shameful right and i think about it in the context of these conversations we're having where i think people especially in um you know the acela corridor tend to think things are moving in a direction but the struggle is is real and deep-seated racial animus 
absolutely still exists. And in sort of little bucolic hamlets two hours outside of New York City, people are taking this moment to declare their allegiance to the Confederacy. And that, to me, is just evidence of the work that needs to be done, right? And to not forget that, um, you know, some of the foundational parts of, you know, um, the American legacy, the fact that we were a country built by slaves, those attitudes towards people of color are very much still alive in places that you would barely suspect them to be. Note that we have a lot of work to do. I'm totally confident we will. Thank you, Alex for being a hep cat on Hacks on Tap. And Axe always Ooh, That's to a tongue to twister, Murphy. There you go. It took four attempts. You got the best jokes in the business, man. See you guys later. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye, guys. <laughs>